0: Hello, and welcome to On the Economy. I'm Ben Spielberg.
1: And I'm Jared
0: Bernstein. And today we're going to talk about a topic that underlies a lot of our work. It actually brings me back to one of the first projects that Jared and I worked on. It was a presentation called Increasing Inequality. It's happening, it matters, and we can do something about it. I remember that. And inequality is really an issue that is present in so much of what we work on here in the Full Employment Project at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And it's something that's very present in our current political debate in terms of looking at something that the Trump administration would make worse.
1: I think your point about inequality being embedded in our politics is important. If you go back to Obama, Biden, both of their campaigns were very much about helping people who are on the wrong side of the inequality divide. And the idea was that GDP was growing, but people in the middle class just weren't getting ahead. Folks at the bottom of the scale weren't climbing out of poverty very quickly. And lo these many years later, the Trump campaign was also very much focused on people left behind in a climate when one group, those at the top of the income scale, are reaping most of the gains from GDP
0: growth. And that is just another way of describing the inequality problem. Now, I think Trump's a little bit of an anomaly because he spoke to a lot of these issues and really didn't have much substance behind what he was speaking about. But I do think that it speaks to this trend where inequality is not something anymore that many people say is not happening. For the most part, there's wide agreement that inequality mm-hmm. is a real problem. You can still find a few people who doubt it, but there's not that many of them.
1: Very much so. I think you'd find more climate deniers than you would inequality deniers. But where you see differences, as you were alluding to, is in what you want to do about it and whether you should even try. I mean, there are those who would tell you in this town of DC that if you really want to do something about inequality, you should get rid of the estate tax. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think, of that course, that's... goes exactly the wrong way.
0: Exactly, and that's really preposterous. I mean, I think the rhetoric that you hear a lot of times coming from people who Want to say this inequality problem is not much of a problem. Is the problems we should really be focused on are reducing poverty and boosting opportunities for people, which are things that we both care a lot about. But what I would say is you cannot possibly address those problems if you don't also address inequality. And I think that's a really important point.
1: If 80% of the growth is going to the top few percent, and there have been periods in the last few decades when that's happened, that just means there's going to be less growth going to the middle and the bottom. And while there have been periods over the last 30 years where incomes have gone up for the middle class or poverty has fallen. Those periods have actually been few and far between. So inequality is definitely hurting both the living standards and the opportunity set facing large shares of Americans.
0: There are really two reasons that Inequality matters beyond that to low- and middle-income people. I think one of them is that people actually do really care about fairness. The way that we experience our economic situation and our lives is not just in a vacuum, it's relative to other people. So if there were $10 out there in the economy and I was going to get $1 and you were going to get $9, Jared, Mm -hmm. some people might say, I would be perfectly happy with that because I'm getting an extra $1. I I might urge you to be happy with that. Right, but psychological studies actually show that if that is a situation where there's a free $10 that falls into our lap and you, Jared, say to me, Ben, I'm going to give you one and I'm going to keep nine for myself. I'm going to say, well, let's just give that $10 back. I prefer neither of us to have anything than for that deal to be so unfair. So that's one reason that inequality matters. And then the other one that is really important is people often underestimate the degree to which growing up without having money and growing up with having money lead to drastically different life circumstances. And it's not just because when you grow up without money, you have less access to public goods in areas that you live and things of that nature, but also just because the stressors associated with not having money And the stressors you don't have to deal with when you do have money, in terms of wondering where your next meal is going to come from, or making sure that you're going to be able to pay the rent, really matter a lot in terms of the amount of attention and energy you have to devote to all the other tasks that you're going to be able to do.
1: There's so many levels to this. There's another argument, and we should get to this later in the show, that suggests one of the problems with inequality, especially in the U.S., with so much money in politics, is that it embeds itself in the political system in such a way that it becomes unsolvable, that is, that those are reaping the benefits of most of the growth are able to use their resources to insulate themselves from policy changes that would benefit other people. And so it has a reinforcing quality in our heavily money-infused politics that just keeps it getting worse.
0: And the upshot of all of this is that we do need to address inequality at the top, as well as policies that we've talked about in other podcast episodes that are specifically targeted at the bottom. Right, we've
1: talked about minimum wages and full employment and better labor standards, and those are targeted at helping folks in the middle and the bottom. But I think what you're saying now is we have to think about the way the economy distributes growth. That is, mechanisms which deliver disproportionate shares of productivity or GDP growth to the top 5%, one 10%, wherever you want to draw the line. We also have to focus on those because what we're saying is that if we ignore them, not only do middle and lower income people face a much more compromised opportunity set, but the system embeds deepenings of those inequalities within
0: it. So we've got two great guests who are going to talk a little bit more about this topic of what do we do at the top about inequality, but before that, Jared, I understand you have some great music for it.
1: that's true. You know, I wanted to play some reggae music because I love that stuff, and often when you think of reggae music, you think Bob Marley, and I do too, he's great, but this is something from a group called Steel Pulse, and I particularly like this song. It's called Chant a Psalm, so it sounds kind of religious, and it is. The Rastafarians, which is a religion that many reggae musicians share, I'm a little fuzzy on it, but they kind of share the old Testament with other religions, and then at some point they kind of break off from that. And in this little excerpt, you'll hear references to characters from the Old Testament, and then we'll just get into some very funky, riggy groove. So check it out. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to On the Economy. Hope you enjoyed that reggae music from Jared. We are joined now by two really great guests. Richard Reeves, who's a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. And
1: the author of a great new book called Dream Hoarders, which I have seen an excerpt of, but now I want to read the whole
0: damn thing. And also Marshall Steinbaum, who's a research director and fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. Richard Marshall, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Richard, I just wanted to start by asking you, Jared and I have been talking about this concept of inequality and the idea that if you really do want to help people at the bottom addressing some problems of inadequacy of opportunity and poverty, you do need to curb top-end inequality as well. And you wrote a piece in the New York Times recently that I thought spoke to this pretty well called Stop Pretending You're Not Rich. And I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about what you laid out in that piece.
2: The main points were that, first of all, it is top-end inequality, but I define the top more broadly than just the top 1%. So part of my argument is that the kind of we are the 99% framing of inequality doesn't get us far enough. Sure, the top 1% have been doing very well and should pay more taxes and so on but that if we're serious about tackling inequality, we need to broaden the definition of the top to include the top 20% the upper middle class because that's where I think you start to see inequality kind of pulling away over the last 30 or 40 years. And then the second thing I talk about is the need for more class consciousness, actually more of an awareness of class division, an awareness on the part of those at the top. I never thought I would miss the British class system, which I escaped, but I do miss it in the sense of the class consciousness in the U.S., because this kind of veneer of classlessness, uh, along with the kind of myth of meritocracy, means that even people who are pretty successful can convince themselves that A, they're only there on the base of their own merit, and B, they're not rich. It's the person over the street who's even richer than them that is rich. And so until we kind of face that squarely, there's limits to how far progressive policies are going to get any traction.
0: Okay, and so Marshall, my understanding was that you had a slightly different take on this problem and the broadening of that definition of inequality, perhaps, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
3: On the question of whether the top 1% or the top 20% or both have pulled away from everybody else and that's the real story of rising inequality, so to speak, the data supports essentially both Richard and my interpretation and that both have moved away. What tells us that the real story is to be found in the top 1% rather than the top 20% is when we try to account for why that has happened. So if you look at inequality statistics in the cross-section, and then over time, you get these huge increases in the top 1%, and also, especially since the year 2000, a disproportionate shifting of what accounts for top incomes from labor to capital income. So
1: there are these nuances and distinctions, top 1%, top 20%, labor income, capital income, but the four of us agree that there's a problem that too much GDP growth is accumulating at the top of the scale, and this is having long-term negative consequences for the opportunity set facing middle and lower income workers. What is the advantage to figuring out these nuances? Is this too academic? I mean, at the end of the day... What does it matter if we're defining inequality as a top 1% or a capitalist sitting on their money bags problem or a top 20% with pretty rich people in gated communities? Richard, why don't you take that first?
2: I think it matters for policy, Jared. Mm -hmm. I think that's where things really start to matter, is that if you try and construct an agenda for more redistribution, say, which is about taking money from those who are doing pretty well and using it to fund public goods for those who haven't been doing so well, then where you draw these lines does start to matter. It matters for policy, and it therefore matters for politics. And my observation is that for some time now, Democrat politicians, even those that are willing to embrace a more redistributive agenda, tend to want to put that line pretty high. And you can see why politically, right? Who doesn't want 99% of the people voting for them? (laughs) And so we are the 99% is immediately intuitively attractive to politicians. But first of all, A, I don't think you can do enough redistribution just from the top 1%. You're going to have to reach a broader group of people to redistribute from. And you should reach to the ones who've been doing better, which is those who are in the top 20%. But there's also a whole other range of policies, the way the housing market works, the way that tax deductions flow to certain people, the way we fund K-12 and post-secondary education. And those sorts of inequalities in human capital formation housing wealth and so on they are really not just a top 1% problem. They do affect the
0: class. So let me ask a question to make some of those policy recommendations more concrete. I assume that you're delivering a critique of the idea that we will not raise taxes on anybody who makes under $250,000 a year, which I feel like we hear a lot during presidential campaigns. Which is the bottom
1: 95%, to be clear.
0: It's a very large group of people that you're saying we won't tax in that case. So I assume that you're saying, no, we should raise some taxes below that amount. And it also sounds like you're saying policies like the mortgage interest. Deduction, which largely benefit people in the top quintile, should also be scaled back, or 529 savings accounts for education, which also largely benefit people who make six figure incomes, should be scaled back as well. Is that what you're talking about? Is there any other specific policy that you're thinking about, Richard, in terms of taxes or anything else? That's
2: that's right. That's a good description. It's worth saying that a lot of those tax expenditures, loopholes, boondoggles, whatever you want to (laughs) call them, they help the top 20%, they really help the top 10%, and they kind of super help the top 1%. So that's where. (laughs) I actually think it's quite important to say that these policy changes would, in fact, have quite a big effect on the top 1%. But yes, when I look at things like the distributional impact of mortgage interest deduction or the college savings plans that I write quite a lot about in my book and so on, then I do see there's a heavy skew towards that top 20% of the population, and so we need to significantly reduce them.
1: Marshall, I doubt you disagree with a lot of that. What's your take?
3: I don't disagree with much of it, but I do disagree with some of it, so I think we've got the good basis for discussion here. Just to get back to what you initially kicked us off with, the reason why it matters why inequality is increasing is exactly as Richard said. That is critical to understanding what the right policy approach is to solving the problem. And specifically, I think it's right to discuss tax policy. So I don't think that the policy paradigm that Ben characterized, that we should not raise taxes on anyone making less than $250,000, I don't think that's good policy at all. I think we should definitely expand the Social Security system, for example, and that would necessarily increase payroll taxes on everyone who's in that system. We do not want to box ourselves in that way. On the other hand, I do think that constraint had a positive effect on the public debate in some sense, which is to point attention at just how much money there is to be taxed north of that figure. And moreover, the reason why there's so much money to be taxed north of that figure is precisely because taxes on high incomes are low and lower than they were in the past. Richard speaks the point that there's not enough money there to be taxed to finance all of the programs that we would potentially want. And even if there were, there's other policy ideas that are worth considering in an egalitarian direction that have nothing to do with taxing the rich. I want to make the fundamental point that if we did levy a higher effective marginal tax rate on people at the top of the income distribution, then their pre-tax earnings would be lower and everybody else's pre-tax earnings would be higher one of the critical components of rising inequality over the last 30 or 40 years in this country and in other countries, but especially in this one, is that the effect of marginal tax rate on the rich has been going down. And extremely rich people can recategorize their income as capital income, which is a tax shelter. They can recategorize their income as untaxed completely by putting it into the types of social policy tax shelters that Richard described. And what that means is that there's a greater incentive for rich people to earn even more income. And that is fundamentally at the root of a lot of the larger problems that the economy faces because it skews the incentives to run the economy to the benefit of the people who are already making the highest incomes. I mean, in the olden days, we used to have a 92% marginal tax rate on the rich, and that is basically a de facto maximum income. And what that says is, all right, these people, they're making as much money as we're going to let them make. It's not worth running the economy to their benefit anymore. They don't even want to and in that world, labor has much higher bargaining power and other economic stakeholders can do much better.
1: So let me interject a story here that I think is instructive and brings us around to some current events that bear on the stuff you were just saying, Marshall. And Richard, you'll remember this because we've talked about it. So the Obama administration proposed to reduce a subsidy that enabled wealthy people to save for college, this 529 savings plan. And they weren't going to get rid of it, but they were going to institute a change so that wealthy people weren't able to put a bunch of income aside tax-free to save for college. And I thought this was a good idea in the spirit of our conversation. And so I went on TV, as I sometimes do, and I was on CNBC with a bunch of rich traders from Wall Street. And I said, certainly we can all agree that this is a good idea in the following sense. Our kids are all going to go to a good college, whether or not we have this savings tax incentive. So it's really kind of a waste. Right, guys? These were all guys. And everybody started yelling at me. (laughs) They were not nearly so willing to give up this tax break that I guarantee you they didn't need. In other words, it wasn't going to influence the decision or where their kids went to school. So that's a pretty tough wind we're leaning against, no?
2: Yes that's one of the reactions that I'm getting now to the book that you referred to earlier. It speaks to this problem of a broad class of people, not just the top 1%, although maybe the guys that were yelling at you, Jared, were not that group, have come to believe that actually they're entitled to these breaks and they're entitled to their money. Why? Because they believe in meritocracy, They believe they got there through hard work. They might be persuaded to point to people who are even richer than them, the top 1%, or if they're in the top 1%, the top 0.1%. But in the end, that won't work. I agree with a lot of what Marshall said. What I disagree with is is that it's been an effective political strategy to say, okay, let's just aim at the top 1%. I actually think it's been ineffective. And I think the last 10 years show that. I think if it was going to be an effective strategy, we would not be where we are now. And we'd have seen much more radical tax reform than President Obama was able to get through. It failed, partly because no one thinks we're the one, and it's just not a big enough group. We have to have a much deeper analysis of inequality that goes beyond the top one percent. And then we've got some chance of dealing with something like five twenty nines. But do you
0: think, Richard, are you saying that you think it's more likely we get rid of 529s than we raise marginal tax rates on the richest people like Marshall is recommending to something akin to what we had in the past up into perhaps the 90 percent range? Do you think that 529s are an easier lift than that?
2: Well, let's be practical for a moment. Given what happened in 2015, no one's going to go near 529s for some time. But I do think that around some of the other areas of tax reform, including other deductions and so on, that there is more hope for at least moving towards capping it and then gradually removing it. We did, after all, get rid of the mortgage interest deduction in the UK under both Labour and Conservative governments over time. So it can be done. But it will require a kind of loosening of the grip of this class on the kind of money that they currently have. And it's not an alternative to the sorts of higher tax on the top 1% that probably both Marshall and I would agree with. I think where we might disagree is how far it's politically feasible to push the effective marginal rate. I think the politics around those very, very high marginal rates have really significantly changed. Now, maybe that will change over time but in order to raise a serious amount of money for the top 1%, you need a seriously high marginal rate. And that seems much less feasible politically than having a go at some of these deductions and at a broader increase in taxes for the top 20%.
3: Let me just clarify something. I don't want to raise a lot of money from the top 1%. I don't want them to make any money at all. That's the aim of a confiscatory top marginal tax rate in the realm of 90%. I mean, nobody earns more than the cutoff for that marginal tax rate, and everybody else earns more. So this isn't an argument about where do you raise the money for a redistributive program. It's an Argument about incentives people have to earn more money and screw over other stakeholders in order to do that. On the matter of 529, we have to think about why these policies have been enacted and why they have such political stickiness once they are enacted. The critical issue here is that we have this allergy towards actually having government programs to accomplish any of these social policy ends, be they providing free college as a public good or expanding social security or healthcare, where instead we think it's sort of a second best option to basically create these tax-sheltered savings accounts. They're necessarily going to be worth more to people in higher tax brackets, so they're already regressive just by their nature, and they don't actually accomplish the social policy end. And that policy project of social policy tax shelters has been very much welcomed on the left side of the political spectrum in the United States, even where they should have known better. So while we're saying let's get rid of terrible policies like the 529 plan, we have to actually enact social policy to replace them, Mm -hmm. not just sort of point our fingers at the privileged upper middle class or whatever who have taken advantage of the policy that is more or less working as intended.
0: What I want to do is just summarize what I think both of your political arguments are. Richard, you're saying that we need to change the way that people who are in some of these higher income groups that aren't necessarily a top one percent think about their own position within the income scale and in the class distribution. And it sounds like, Marshall, you're saying we need to change the way that Americans think in general about how we provide certain positive social goods. We should do them with direct investments more so than through the tax code. Am I getting that right for both of you?
2: I think of myself, yeah. For me, part of it is about persuading people within that upper middle class to look down the distribution and not just to look up at the top 1%. And that's a necessary precursor to a successful progressive policy program, which may well include some of the things that Marshall is suggesting, but it seems to me that we're a very, very long way from that. Unless we can really provoke some inward reflection and some more awareness of people's actual economic situation, which has been prevented by the focus on just the top 1%, then we'll continue to have discussions about these policies for as long as we all will live.
3: (laughs) To characterize this from my own perspective, I don't think that successful egalitarian policies have ever been enacted in the past by convincing the upper middle class, so to speak, to sort of, of their own volition, give up the class privileges that they enjoy. If we want to make the economy both a more egalitarian place and, frankly, a more dynamic and faster-growing place, we need, as Richard says, a sort of revamp of the class consciousness, but it's not aimed at the upper middle class or the privileged attenders of Ivy League universities but rather at the political system as a whole and the vast majority of voters and would-be voters who are being screwed over by the status quo economic policy. And what that would amount to in terms of the political changes that would bring about any other distribution of resources or fundamentally rewriting the rules of the economy is that larger group, the voters as a whole and non-voters, taking power away from the people who've been making economic policy in their own interests for a good long time now and not doing so very well.
1: Well, that is a great place to
0: end, and thank you to Marshall Steinbaum and Richard Reeves for going into the weeds with us on this. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a great conversation. I always love talking to both Richard and Marshall because I think they both have really interesting insights. There are elements of what both of them said that I really strongly agree with. Richard is absolutely right that we really need to dismantle this myth of American meritocracy, and this is something I spend a lot of time thinking about. So
1: maybe we better define that. What do we mean by meritocracy?
0: So I think there is this idea in America that if you work hard, you play by the rules, and you're talented, you will rise up and you will realize economic success. While maybe there are a few people for whom they find that to be true, generally speaking, where you are in America is much more a reflection of luck and your privilege than it is of your talent.
1: Let me summarize that with two quips. The first is there's a lot of people out there who are born on third and thought they hit a triple. (laughs) That's one quick way to say it. And second, too often your zip code determines where you end up. If you can tell me, I was born in this zip code, and I can tell you within a confidence interval where you're going to end up in terms of income mobility, something's wrong.
0: Yeah, and I would say it's not just zip code. I mean, it's your socioeconomic status. So Mm -hmm. there's a whole host of disadvantages by race, by class, by gender, embedded in American society that prevent people from realizing And
1: Richard's potential. point is that that notion of meritocracy, I'm here because I deserve it, needs to be chipped away at.
0: Yeah, I think he says it's holding us back, and I agree with him, because there are a lot of people who are in circles that I've run in for much of my life who walk around thinking that a large part of our success is due to talent and hard work, and these are talented, hardworking people, but the flip side of that that we don't recognize is there are so many more people who are also talented and hardworking, who have not been able to make it because they haven't had those advantages.
1: So let's shift into what I referenced at the beginning of the show. One of the implications of inequality means that income and wealth are concentrated at the top of the income scale. And in our money and politics society, that means that the wealthy can buy not just the politicians they want, but the policies they want. And those policies entrench inequality within our system.
0: Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page did some really interesting work on this where they take a look at what policy preferences different groups of people have and then what policies actually get enacted. And what they find is that policy is pretty unresponsive to the preferences of low and middle income people in America. But when you are somebody with more money, if you oppose a policy, generally, there's a very low probability that it's going to pass. And if you support a policy, there's a much higher probability. This is the kind
1: of research that if I went home and told it to my wife, she'd say, duh. It's kind of saying that when rich people contribute to political campaigns, they know what they're doing. They're not wasting their money, right?
0: Yeah, I think that that's right. And when there is more inequality, like you said, it kind of contributes to this feedback loop where... self-reinforced. Yeah.
1: Well, that would be a discouraging place to stop, but it does make me think of something Marshall was kind of getting at around power that kind of links to some of the discussions we've had, Ben, about various groups out there that I know you think a lot about and their importance in the system. Why don't you
0: take us out on that point? Sure, and I mentioned before that I thought that certain elements of both Richard's and Marshall's synopsis of this problem are very germane. And this is the one of Marshall's that really resonates with me, which is this idea that there is a structural disadvantage that low and middle income people are up against in our economy and our political system. And we do need to fix that problem if we are going to achieve the policy wins that we want. We've talked about, Jared, as you mentioned, some movements that are aimed at doing that. So we have a movement that we talked about recently called the Fed Up Campaign. There's the Fight for 15. There's Black Lives Matter. There's Occupy Wall Street before that. I think... We have increasingly seen in recent years a lot of people standing up and saying, you know what, this economy is not working for all of us. And I think the more that people can see how much the economy is rigged, something both Richard and Marshall talked about, the more that those movements can gain power and continue to deliver on some policy wins. All right, well, that's been pretty deep in the weeds there for a few minutes. Give us a joke, Ben. So Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, a practical economist, and an old drunk are walking down the street, mm-hmm. and they find $100. Who gets to keep it? Uh, Um, The Tooth Fairy? No, the old drunk, because all the rest are imaginary characters. (laughs) And that's this week for On the Economy.